We'll get to page 28 in Lesson 7 in just a bit. But I want to remind you of some things that are coming up. Two weeks from today, June the 7th, and for the four Sundays in June, we will have our periodic newcomers orientation. As the name suggests, that is for those who are new to our church and you're checking us out. We offer that four-week class to help you to do that. I lead that in another room just uh, out this back door and across the hallway during this hour. So for those four weeks during the 11 o'clock hour, if you are interested in knowing more about CBC, then the newcomer's orientation is for you. So mark that two weeks from today and take as many of those sessions uh, as you can. And there's no pressure that's put on you after you take that. It's just for information to help you make a prayerful decision about uh, whether this would be the place that the Lord would have you. And then simultaneous with that, running uh, at the same time, is our new members class. And that's for those who've joined our church since the last new members class a few months ago. Those of you that fit in that category, we know who you are. We know who's joined, and you'll get a direct invitation. You don't get a direct invitation for the newcomers because I don't know who all the newcomers are. So you just have to heed the announcement and then uh, and then show up for that two weeks from today in adult classroom two across the hallway uh, on June 7th. And then also we have baptism, our next baptism coming up July the 19th. If you have never been baptized, then Jesus commands that of us. It's not something that's optional. It's not something you do if you if you feel like it. It's something Jesus says that all of his followers are commanded to do. And as a matter of fact, the first step in being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is for us to, to get baptized. So July 19th at 5 o'clock that Sunday afternoon, we will have a baptism service. And I need to know who's looking to be baptized so we can make sure you understand what qualifies one for baptism and what is involved in it and what that commitment means. We have a one-page application to get that process started for you. That's at the Information Center desk. I'd encourage you to grab one of those today, fill it out, turn it in today or, or next week, and then that'll go to me and we'll go from there. Last announcement is the fundraisers for our teenagers, our teenagers in the middle of July, are going to be going on a ministry trip to the Jacksonville, Florida area. They'll be doing some outreach for our former associate pastor, Matt Owen, and the church that he now leads in a suburb of Jacksonville, Orange Park, Florida. And it's going to be a great time for our kids of ministry. They'll also have a great time together. There's also some fun mixed into the itinerary for that. But it costs $400, $450 per team. And so that's steep for some of our families. And some of our families have more than one teen. Uh, that will be that will be going. So we're trying to defray that cost as much as we can so that all of the teenagers who want to go are able to do that. And we've offered two ways for you to help with that. One is to just directly donate some money uh, today and next week. You can do that. Uh, designate on an envelope or in the memo portion of a check that this is for the teen ministry trip. And that's all going into a uh, particular account. And then we will assign a teenager to you who will report back to you on how your money uh, helped them and how that trip uh, impacted them. So uh, if you can just donate some money, that would help. If we could get $100 per teen off and reduce that to 350 that would be terrific. That would mean we probably have to collect about $2,500 because we anticipate about 25 teenagers going on the, on the trip. But another way we're looking to raise funds is on June the 14th, Sunday evening, June the 14th, so just three weeks from today, uh, at 7 o'clock that evening in this room, the uh, teens are going to have a musical presentation. 
And our teens have sung in front of the church on a Sunday morning a time or two. So if you've heard them, you know how, how good they are. Uh, they sing together a lot uh, at their teen events. And so uh, they know they have some favorite songs that they do kind of around the campfire and in the, the backyards that they, they hang out in. And they're going to do they're going to do some of those. In fact, I'm told they're going to do seven of those. And then they also have seven hymns that they're going to be leading and the congregation will be uh, singing with them. So it'll be a music night. We have a suggested donation of ten dollars for that. If you can't afford to give anything, come anyway. If it, if you can give five dollars, do that. If you can give fifty dollars, do that. Whatever uh, is uh, it works for you. Uh, but that money will also go toward the teen ministry trip. All right. We are in our seventh of eight weeks in the series, the title of which is on the screen, Why You Can Trust the Bible. And we've looked at the necessity of revelation, that if we are to know about God and know about ourselves and know about his purpose for us, it's necessary, it's mandatory, it's required that God reveal. That word means to make known, that God make known who he is, why he has created the world, what his purposes are. So there's the necessity of revelation. Then there's the necessity of Scripture, to have that revelation written down so that it could be preserved for us. And then we started to look at the uniqueness of the Bible as God's revelation to us, the particular attributes of the Bible that point to it as having divine origin. And we saw that the Bible has amazing predictions, prophecies, given hundreds of years before an event with great detail of things that would happen and came to pass. And then in lesson four, we saw that the Bible predicts uh, the life and times of the anointed one, the one that was predicted to come in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, called the Messiah, and in the New Testament called the, the Christ. And of course, we know the Christ as Jesus of Nazareth. But the Bible had no, dozens of predictions related to where he would be born, the time that he would be born, the things that would, would happen to him in amazing detail. <clears throat> we looked in lesson five at... The Bible and its relationship to science. And we noted that science needs to be understood, particularly as science looks at origins, where we came from, that science needs to be understood as an ideology, that everybody brings to the evidence a particular view of that evidence. And so there's no such thing as just neutrality when one looks at a fossil. But one brings presuppositions to looking at that, that fossil, and that of necessity affects the, the way they interpret the, the evidence. And if, if one brings a proper mindset, if one brings a proper set of lenses, a proper worldview to the evidence, then there is not only no contradiction with what the Bible teaches, but science is very consistent with, with what the Bible teaches. And then last week, we saw archaeology and how archaeology and archaeological discoveries confirm the Bible as well. That brings us then to Lesson 7 and page 28. And we only have today and next week, and then we will conclude this series. And you see at the top of page, top of page 28, the purpose and the power of the Bible. Purpose and power of the Bible. We've stressed that truth is not a matter of personal, subjective feeling or opinion, but rather exists outside ourselves and must be made known, that is, revealed to us. We've also looked at several objective indications of the Bible's uniqueness that point to its trustworthiness. Yet this does not mean that the Bible has no personal value. Indeed, another indication of the Bible's uniqueness is the effect that it has on individuals. Because it is objective truth, the Bible is able to do what no other book can. 
In this lesson, we're going to see the Bible's purpose is to indeed affect people, as well as the means by which that effect is accomplished. So, first of all, the dual purposes of the Bible, and these are given in the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible, which is listed there for you, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that passage gives two effects that the Bible is intended to have on individuals. The first one is the Bible has the ability to teach us how to be saved. That underlined portion in the passage, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is in the Bible that we learn of what our problem is, sin. We learn of the consequences for that problem of sin, and that's eternal separation from God if that problem is not remedied. But we also, thankfully, learn the good news of God's solution for the problem of sin, and that is God the Son, Jesus Christ, having come to earth. Jesus is the Christ, and the Christ did all that the first part of the Bible predicted that the Anointed One would do. In particular, he died as a sacrifice for our sins, having lived a perfect life of righteousness, so that his death was acceptable to God the Father, and God the Father indicated his acceptance of the death of Jesus by raising him from the dead. That's why Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 says he was raised for our justification. When he was raised, it meant now that we have the possibility of being declared righteous, justified before God, because it meant God the Father accepted the totality of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and in his death on the cross. And all of that was pointed to in the first part of your Bible and then is fulfilled as recorded in the New Testament. So the Bible has the ability to teach us how to be saved. It tells us what our problem is, what the consequences for that problem are, if not remedied, but it gives us the solution in the good news, the gospel of of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, as you have heard me lament many times, if you've been with us a while, too many Christians are content to leave the Bible's purpose there at how to be saved. So as long as I'm saved, I'm good to go. So salvation for many professing Christians means a fire escape, fire insurance. I've got my, I've got my ticket to heaven punched by Jesus. But I've said it this way. For many people, Jesus is their ticket to heaven, but he's also supposed to be your passport through life as well. He's not just your ticket to heaven. He is actually to guide your life in the here and now. So if you're one of those nominal Christians, nominal means really in name only, somebody who's nominally a Christian because I'm saved. Back when I was a kid, I heard the gospel. I responded to that but I'm not really interested in any change going on in my life, then you've missed the point of God's purpose for placing us here and God's giving us his word to achieve that purpose. God has placed us here 
to bring glory to himself. But bringing glory to him is impossible, impossible, apart from the saving and sanctifying, we're going to see work of Jesus Christ through his word in our lives. Our purpose is to bring glory to God, which means display his character, reflect him back to him. That's what we were made for, but that's impossible in our sinful state. And it's impossible for us to do it completely as one day we will when we are glorified. That's why that word is used. We're to bring glory to God, to display his character fully back to him. And one day we will be, the Bible says, glorified. That is, we will be completely changed and able to fully reflect God back to God. Now we can do that in some measure, but God designs that that be an increasing measure. And that's what sanctification is about. There's salvation. There's the initial time when we come to God through Jesus Christ, recognizing our sin its consequences, and that he's the only solution. That's the rescue, that's the deliverance, the salvation the Bible speaks of, but that's the beginning of the Christian life. And then the ongoing evidence that we are saved is to be seen in that we are being progressively sanctified. Now, what does sanctified mean? Sanctified means to be set apart. So progressively, day by day, week by week, year by year, we are to be increasingly set apart from the world and to God. And if we are not day by day and year by year, as time goes on, being set apart, progressively sanctified, then it may be evidence that, in fact, this initial thing that we claim never happened. Because the normal Christian life is for someone to come to Christ, but then for someone to grow in Christ. And that growth is seen in this progressive sanctification. Now, how does the word of God fit into that? Well, the Bible is given, according to verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, for the purpose of, yes, salvation, but also sanctification. Because it says all scripture is given. And here's the purpose clause in verse 17. So that you see it underlined there. Purpose. So that here's the purpose. The man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God has given his word for us to perform every good work that he has commanded, every good work that he has assigned, but that requires that we be progressively set apart, progressively becoming like Christ. And the scriptures are given to aid us in doing that. So notice verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. It has come from God, is what that statement means, and it's useful For these four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And I pointed out to you in the past that those four things are in a logical order. If you reverse any of those, it doesn't make any sense. If you move any of them around, it doesn't make sense. But they are written in a logical order. That first, you receive the teaching of the Bible. You receive the teaching of the Bible about God's standards, about what God's righteous requirements are. And there's often... A gap, as I look into the mirror of God's word and I am taught about God's righteous standards, there's a gap between his standard and what I'm actually doing. Which leads logically to the second of those four things. Rebuking. And that word rebuke is the same Greek word that's translated sometimes conviction. So some translations will have there teaching, convicting. 
So having looked into the perfect law of liberty, as James chapter 1 calls it, the Word of God, I see myself in the mirror of the Word of God, I see that I don't measure up, and I am convicted or I'm, I'm rebuked. Now, if there were a period after that, all Scripture is God-breathed, it's come from God, and it's useful for teaching me what a crumb I am, and then convicting me for being such a crumb, period, If we were left there, then we would be in despair. But thanks be to God, it goes on. That the word of God is for teaching and, yes, convicting slash rebuking. But then notice the third thing is correcting. And that word correct is a word that means to cause to stand something which has previously fallen. To correct. To erect. To erect a building means to cause the building to stand. And so to, to correct means to cause to stand something that has previously fallen. So I've sinned, I'm rebuked, I'm convicted. But God's word gives me the instructions now for standing. And so, for example, Ephesians chapter 4 gives instructions on putting off and putting on. So if you're sinning in particular ways with your attitude, with your tongue, with your actions, Ephesians 4 says put off certain things and replace those things with other kinds of attitudes and words and and behavior. And then the Bible wants us to continue in that kind of righteous living. And that's what the fourth thing is. It's training. It's the word that's sometimes translated discipline. So disciplined living. And the Bible gives instructions for us on how to implement disciplines of of godly living in in our lives so the bible was given because god wants us just to be saved but progressively to be sanctified let me just stop there and then we're going to move on well let me ask you friend if you evaluate your own life and you evaluate your own life and compare where you were in your walk with god a year ago to where you are now are you growing in jesus Now, you might easily say, yep, got it, check, I'm growing in Jesus. Here's what you should do. Ask somebody else. (laughs) Ask somebody else that, that you trust. Ask a Christian brother or sister that you trust to have your spiritual well-being at heart. Are you seeing more Christ likeness in me this year than you saw last year? The answer to that should be yes. If you're saying to yourself, I don't have any Christian brothers or sisters like that, then that's an area that you're not growing in. Right. Because the Bible says that we have all these one another commands that we're to fulfill. So bear one another's burdens and love one another and pray for one another and serve one another and accept one another. You got all these one another commands. So if you're not involved in the lives of God's people, you're disobeying a whole bunch of commands in the Bible. So every one of us should have somebody's plural that we should be able to say, hey, Am I growing in the Lord? What do, you, what do you see in me that I need to go to the Lord with and go to God's word with that needs to be corrected, that needs to change? That's God's expectation, that we're not just saved and have the fire insurance, but that we're changing, that we're growing into the image of Jesus. All right, those are the dual purposes of the Bible, but how is that going to be accomplished? Well, it's only going to be accomplished if we use the Bible as directed. So the means of accomplishing the Bible's purposes. Communication always requires interpretation. Unless one understands the message of the Bible, its purposes of salvation and sanctification cannot be achieved. 
Unfortunately, many use exceptional methods of interpreting the Bible that obscure rather than enlighten its message. And based on the many interpretations that exist, many conclude the Bible is a hopelessly obscure book. But the reason there are so many interpretations is not that the Bible can mean all things to all people. But it's because we don't, quote, play by the same rules. So what I'm going to try to show here as quickly as I can in the 25 minutes that I have is to go through this, these principles that we have as part of our community institute. We have this as part of our master plan for life class. I also spend some time in our how to get the most out of your Bible class. So if you've taken either or both of those, then you will have heard these principles. They're that important for us to have them reinforced so that we use the Bible as directed. But when we say people don't use the Bible uh, in a proper way, that we don't all play by the same rules, here's part of what I mean. People use exceptional methods, uh, I said earlier, uh, in the in the second line there, to interpret the Bible. Now, exceptional methods, here's what I mean. Because we believe that the Bible has come from God, the Bible is God-breathed, it is God's Word, then sometimes people think that you have to use some kind of uh, esoteric method to get at God's meaning in the Bible. But that's not only not correct, it actually will obscure the meaning of the Bible if you're not very careful. The Bible is ultimately authored by God. God oversaw the process of producing Scripture, but God used people to produce it. God used human beings to write it. And he used regular human beings to do that, 40 of them, writing the 66 books that comprise your your Bible. 40 of them from different backgrounds, writing in two primary languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, a little bit of Aramaic in your Old Testament. So you have three languages, but these are regular human languages. Regular human languages with grammar and syntax and word meanings and written by human beings who engage in regular, normal human communication. So yes, the Bible is God's word, and yes, the Bible came from God, but God used people to produce it. And he used the normal means of human communication to write it down for us. And he did that so that we could use normal means of interpretation in order to understand what it means. So don't make the mistake of thinking that because the Bible is God's word, i got to have some sort of God way of figuring out what it says. You figure out what it says the same way you figure out what anything else says. By placing every message that you receive in context. And you place every message of the Bible in its context. Now, it's easy for you to place some messages in their context. Messages that you receive here and now are easy to place in context. Because since you're here, that is, living in this area, then context is easily determined because you know the lingo, you know the, the, the figures of speech, all of that. So you live at a particular place, that's fairly easy for you to do. And if you live at a particular time. So I say it this way, messages that are both local, that is, in your locale, and contemporary at this time, you can kind of automatically do this interpretation. So you're listening to me talk right now, and assuming you're awake, which is, okay, I'm not assuming that for everybody, but if you've got anybody next to you who's not awake, let them know I'm looking at you, all right? But assuming you're awake and you're listening to what I'm saying, 
you're, I, I think, understanding the words I'm speaking. And the reason you're understanding them is because we live at the same place and at the same time. And so you're interpreting my words without even thinking about it. It just sort of automatically happens. Now, with the Bible, that same process has to take place, but it has to take place consciously rather than what you do every day unconsciously. You, that, with the Bible, because it's not local, because it was written in different places, and it's not contemporary, it was written at a different time, you now have to consciously apply the principles that you un- automatically apply when you hear somebody talk like I am. And that's what we're saying at the bottom of page 28. We don't play by the same rules. And just before that box there, God chose to use common means, real authors who wrote in real human language to give us his word, and it's by common means that it's to be interpreted. Interpretation is the process that allows us to understand the author's intended meaning. The goal of reading and studying the Bible is to understand what the author who wrote it intended to communicate. Now, if you're asking yourself, well, which author, God or Moses? God or Paul, God or Daniel, God or David, God or Peter, God or John. If you're asking yourself that, you're asking the wrong question. Because God's meaning is Paul's meaning. Paul's meaning is God's meaning. Peter's is God's. God's is Peter's. If you get Peter's, if you get Paul's, you've got God's. And you get that through normal human means. Now, what are those means that we use to interpret normal human communication? Bottom of page 28, interpretation is not often given consideration because most of it occurs instantly without thought. And that's because we receive these messages contemporary and local, as I said. And as a result, we automatically understand the author's intended meaning because we're familiar with the circumstances, the customs, the language, and other factors. The Bible, however, was written in the past. Therefore, we have to work to consciously apply principles of interpretation we unconsciously use every day. Now, what are those? It's to place the Bible's message in historical context. And all communication, page 29, has an historical historical context. Every book of the Bible was written at a particular time and place for a particular purpose. These and similar factors make up what is known as the historical context. We have to interpret every biblical passage in light of the purpose for which it was was written. So each passage in your Bible is there for a particular purpose. And if you're looking at a particular section of a particular book of the Bible... That thing is not isolated from every other thing in that book. In fact, it's connected to the overall book. So before you isolate that one passage, you want to know what is the whole book about? And then how does this particular passage contribute to the purpose for which this was, this was written? So as, uh, as an example, in the book of 1 John, five chapters, 1 John. At the end of 1 John, 1 John 5.13, John says, I have written these things so that, that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. That's what he says. So at the end of the book, it's only five chapters, and in chapter 5, he says, here's why I wrote it. I've written so that. Here's my purpose. So now, having read the five chapters and knowing what the purpose is, I can go back and look at individual passages and see how that passage contributes to that purpose. 
And you go back and look at First John, and he's got these tests that help you know whether or not you have eternal life. First John is a book about assurance of salvation. And John says, here are some tests for you to have assurance of your salvation. So the individual passages are interpreted in light of the overall purpose of, of the book. Secondly, you have to interpret every biblical text in light of its chronology. Chronology. And here's why. Because the Bible has 66 individual books written by 40 different authors, but those 66 books were written over a period of 1,600 years, at least. Job may have been written, uh, make it to, over a period of 2,000 years. We're not exactly sure when Job was written, but at least 1,600 years. From the, the first book that was written to the last book that was, that was written. So that being the case, you've got books that are written in between. Some of them were written at, at 800 B.C. Some of them were written in 1446 B.C., like the first five books of your Bible written by, by Moses. And that's a different chronology. There were different things that were happening at, at that time. Now, here's one way in which that affects you in a very important doctrinal way. In your New Testament, you have a, a chronology to the way your New Testament was laid out. Your New Testament starts with Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are all about the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth and his mission as God the Son come to earth. But then Jesus accomplishes his mission. He rises from the dead. He returns back to the Father. And then the fifth book of your New Testament, the book of Acts. The full name of that book is the Acts of the Apostles. So Jesus ascends back to heaven, but he leaves these chosen apostles, to carry out his work and spread his gospel. And so the fifth book in your New Testament is what they did, their actions, the actions, the acts of the apostles. And in the second chapter of Acts, you find the apostles and other early disciples, followers of Jesus, gathered together because Jesus had said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power to begin the mission that I've given to you. And in Acts chapter 2, they're gathered in one room, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak in other tongues. Anybody remember reading that? Now, as you read that, you will find in Acts chapter 2 that it says twice that people who were hearing the hearing them speak in these tongues, we're hearing them speak in our own language. It says that twice. So this was not a language that people didn't understand. This was, in fact, a human language that these guys hadn't learned. That the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak, and people go, hey, this guy who's from, you know, to put it in the in contemporary, this guy from Germany who doesn't know English is speaking to me in English. How is that? And it was a sign that this worldwide mission that Jesus said is going to go to all nations is now beginning. Because there were gathered in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, Jews from every nation under heaven. That's what the Bible says. And so they speak in these languages. Well, the chronology is important. Because about 25 years after that happened, that happened in 33 A.D., About 25 years after that, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth called 1 Corinthians. And if you read through the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, here's what you'll find. The Corinthians were a wreck, 
a wreck. If I ever, you know, worry about our church and the state of our church, I go and read Corinthians and I come away feeling better about us. Because those guys were a wreck. They had amazing problems, huge problems. And the whole book is Paul addressing their problems. I'm always amazed when every now and then I see a van, a church van, with its name on the side and it says Corinthian Baptist Church. Like of all the things you want to be, it ain't that, all right? And it's all these problems. It's problems with divorce and remarriage. It's problems with taking one another to court. It's problems with, should I eat meat that has been previously sacrificed to idols? And then when you come to chapters 12 and 13 and 14, after addressing those problems, Paul says, all right, now let me address your problems with spiritual gifts. You guys got problems, big problems, and one of them is what you do with spiritual gifts. And as you read chapter 14, it's all about 40 verses, all about speaking in tongues. And 25 years after the first event of speaking in tongues, you've got people speaking in languages that nobody understands. Now, the chronology is important because speaking in tongues actually happened in the Bible in Acts chapter 2. But the first time it happened in 33 AD, it was clearly a language that people understood. And 25 years later, just like the Corinthians had perverted so many other things, including the Lord's table, which also started in 33 AD. And now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're getting drunk at the Lord's table. And they perverted that, and they have also perverted speaking in tongues. Now, if you don't know that chronology, if you don't know that what happened in Acts happened about 25 years before what Paul's writing about in Corinth, then you just open your Bible, and you find Paul instructing them about speaking in tongues, and you will do what my friends did when I was growing up as a Pentecostal. I grew up Pentecostal, some of you know. And... What we commonly did was we would open the Bible, find the Bible talking about something, and because the Bible talked about something, we assumed the Bible approved it. So if Paul's instructing them on speaking in tongues, then he must approve of speaking in tongues, which means he must approve of what we're doing. But if you put it in its historical context, you find not only does he not approve of what you're doing, he's not commending it, he's actually condemning it. And he's saying this is a manifestation of the carnality and the selfishness. The way you are doing this is a manifestation of that selfishness, just like the taking each other to court, the divorce issue, uh, the getting drunk at the Lord's table, and so on. The chronology matters. Third, interpret every biblical text in light of its geography. Geography. So the places in the Bible are faraway places and long-ago places. And you will find things like in the narrative portions of the Old Testament. Statements like, they went up to Jerusalem when they were already north of Jerusalem. Now we say here, we're going up north because we live in southeast Michigan. So if I'm going up north, that means I'm going north. But these guys would say I'm going up to Jerusalem even when they're already north of Jerusalem. Now why? Because Jerusalem is elevated. So it doesn't matter where you are, north or south or east or west. When you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem. It also explains a number of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. That in the superscription up at the top, depending on what translation you have, it says a song of degrees or a song of ascents. 
that is, a song for uh, gradually, by degrees, making your ascent to Jerusalem. These were songs that pilgrims to Jerusalem would sing as they went to the holy city, Mount Zion. And there's a bunch of them. And when you read those then, you look at Psalm 121, and you say, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes. Well, that's as they're approaching the holy city in the mountain, and they're looking, they say, I lift up my eyes, and there it is. And this is where my help comes from. This is where the temple is. This is where the Lord is. The geography matters. Fourthly, interpret every biblical text in light of its culture. Modern day thought and behavior are different from that of Bible times. Further, there are cultural differences between groups of people even mentioned in Scripture. The Roman culture of Paul's day is different than the Hebrew culture of of Moses' day. So with all of that, you're placing in its historical context, and here's the principle, a text cannot mean what it never meant. A text can't mean something today that it didn't first mean then. So when we have our home groups our community groups, we don't do what little Bible studies sometimes do. You get groups of Christians together, they get around in a circle, you read a passage, and then here's what we, go, we do. We go around and we say, hey, what does that mean to you? And then somebody, they say, this is what that verse means to me. And then the next person, it means something different to them. And it means something different, means something different. And here's the thing. That passage means one thing. Now, it could be applied a bunch of ways. But it means one thing. And to get that one thing, you're going to have to place it in its historical context, but top of page 30, also in its literary context. In addition to the historical setting, interpretation is influenced by literary factors. Different literary types are interpreted differently. An apple a day keeps the doctor away is a modern proverb. Proverbs not a blanket guarantee, but a general truth. That's what a proverb is. So you've got a whole book in your Bible called Proverbs. And when the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is not Moses writing that as a law book, as a legal guarantee. That's a proverb. And Proverbs, by definition, are general truths. Generally, that's true. But it's not always true. And that doesn't make the Bible wrong. Because the Bible didn't write it as a legal guarantee. So a proverb has to be interpreted as a proverb. So interpret every biblical text in light of what form it is. The Bible contains poetry, narratives, proverbs, parables. Each of these is to be interpreted accordingly. So, for example, narrative portions of Scripture, which is two-thirds of your Bible, by the way. Two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. It's describing what happened to other people. So narrative portions describe the actions of others and the letters, the epistles, prescribe actions for others. So Acts chapter 1 describes the fact the disciples went to Jerusalem. Now that's describing that. So you read those passages that Peter and John, the apostles, they went to Jerusalem. And if everything written in the Bible is a prescription for you, then you should be packing your bags. In fact, we were going to have a Holy Land tour last month. And we didn't get enough people to go. I should have just pulled that out and said, God commands us all to go to Jerusalem. Okay? But he doesn't command us all to go to Jerusalem. He's describing the fact that other people went to Jerusalem. And that, in fact, is two-thirds of of your Bible. So interpret it in light of its literary form. 
interpret every biblical text in light of its literary device. And so there are figures of speech in the Bible. Sometimes people say, do you believe in the Bible is literally true or do you believe in literal interpretation? Well, yes, but as long as you understand that literal interpretation still takes into account figures of speech. And so I actually prefer the term normal communication rather than literal because normal communication takes into account when you're using figures of speech and there are figures of speech used in the Bible. So principle one is a text can't mean what it never meant and principle two is all texts are not alike. And then lastly, all communication has not only historical context, literary context, but a grammatical context. The difference between the original language of a biblical book and the language of the reader today creates additional obstacles to interpretation, but these can be overcome by application of the following rules. Interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. Now, how are you going to do that if you don't know Greek and Hebrew? You're going to get a good translation of the Bible that is faithful to the original languages. Now, one of the reasons we use the New International Version of the Bible here is because it is one such. It's not the only one. The English Standard Version, that's the ESV, is very good. The New American Standard Bible is very good as well. So I would recommend all three of those to you. And if you're using any three of those, then you are getting in English the Bible uh, and its equivalent in English to what the Hebrew and Greek say. And then the top of page 31. Interpret every biblical text in light of its larger logical units, larger logical units. Stay with me for a few minutes here. So when we say this is under grammatical context, and when we say larger logical units, here's what we're saying. That in grammar, that you have units of grammar, and the smallest unit of grammar is is a word. But words don't mean anything by themselves. Words are put in sentences. And so the next larger logical unit is a sentence. But even sentences are put in larger units called, called paragraphs. Now, if you remember, if you were taught well and you learned well, then you remember that a paragraph starts a new thought. Now, fortunately for me, when I went to college, and in my freshman year of college, I took an English composition class. And fortunately for me, almost none of the 149 other students in that class had learned that. So I looked like a genius because <laughs> I knew what a paragraph was. That a paragraph starts a new thought. For most people writing, unfortunately in our day, it's just not taught or learned well. But for most people, they start writing and they just keep writing. And then they think, you know, I've been writing a long time. I should indent. <laughs> and that's how you get a new paragraph, Okay. But really, a new paragraph starts a new thought that contributes to the overall theme of what it is you're putting together. And that's the way it is in the letters of the Bible. It's one of the reasons I recommend the NIV, because if you look at, for example, a King James or some others, the way the verses are laid out, every verse looks like it stands by itself. There's no, there's, there's no formatting in paragraph form. In the NIV, it is laid out in paragraph form. And that helps you see that a new thought is now contained here. And these three verses or these six verses are a new thought contributing to the overall theme of this particular book. So those larger logical units, word, sentence, paragraph, but then the paragraph is contained within a book and that book has a theme, as I described earlier. And then that book fits within the 66 books 
of, of the Bible. So those are the larger logical units. Here's the principle. A text has only one meaning. It has only one grammatical meaning. Not two, not five. It has one. And if you put a text in then its historical, its literary, and its grammatical context, then you can know what it means. Here's the conclusion. Because the Bible is God's word, it's able to affect us as no other book. Because it's outside of us, it's able to take an objective look at us, diagnose our problems, and offer solutions. Here's another famous passage in the Bible about the Bible. Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, friends, that's what the Bible does. What a, be- what a beautiful book. What a gift to us from God. What a shame that Christians and churches have lost an appreciation for the Word of God and are replacing the Word of God with other stuff. The Word of God has got to be, has got to be central to your life, to my life. It has got to be central to the life of the church because this is what the Word of God does. It makes you wise for salvation. It moves you along in the process of sanctification. And it judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And it tells us about a a high priest, Jesus, who is one who sympathizes with our weakness, tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Let's use the Word of God that way and thereby benefit from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Bible. It is your gift to us. And Lord, without it, we would be blind. We would be groping in the darkness. We would be lost in our sin. We would not know the good news of the gospel. We would not know what a life of walking with you is like and can be like and is to be like. Lord, all of these things would be lost to us. And yet you have painstakingly over 1,600 years using dozens of servants of yours and preserving your word throughout millennia have given us the Holy Bible. Help us to see it as the marvelous gift that it is and help us then to use it appropriately. Use it as directed. Help us to place it in context, reading it diligently, applying it regularly to our lives, both as individuals and as a church. And as a result, May we progressively be conformed to the image of Jesus. Go with us this week as we seek to apply your word in the spheres of of activity that you have placed us in. We ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.